Welcome to another installment of Historical Homicide. I'm your host, Christina Bentley, here to guide you through the macabre history of local murder. My question for you today is this. What makes you upset? Are you easily thrown? Or does it take a lot to get under your skin? Little occurrences, bigger situations? Does your passion bubble close to the surface? Or is it a slow burn, lying in wait, ready to strike at the right opportunity? Maybe you consider your anger indignation at the right things, or do slight inconveniences bring out the absolute worst in you? Let's explore this largely misunderstood feeling. Let's discuss anger. For today's story, we're back in the 1890s. In previous episodes, I've laid out our scene of the 1890s pretty thoroughly. The sweat of the Second Industrial Revolution mixed with the opulence of the gay 90s truly separated working individuals from the upper crust. But today, we're not working in the city. We're attending a wedding, and this grand affair takes place in Philadelphia. And what a beautiful event it will be. Here. I'll tell you about it on the way. It starts any minute, and we best find our seats. And here we are. What a beautiful church. Do you see the finely dressed groom? That's William Beaumont. He runs the Colin Woodworsted Mill. And here comes the bride, Margaret Rowbottom. It's like a Cinderella story. Margaret immigrated from England a few years ago and started working at the mill. That's when wealthy, handsome William noticed her. They fell in love almost immediately. And now here we are at their grand wedding. And look, you see those two women sitting over there? They're Jane and Clara Rowbottom, Margaret's mother and her younger teenage sister. Apparently, there's a little scandal there. The word is that Mr. Rowbottom is a deplorable, mean man who just abandoned his wife and youngest daughter. He left them destitute, and they used the last of their money to come here to America, to Margaret's fairy tale wedding. Hopefully their luck changes, just like Margaret's did. And there's the best man, Squire Tangard. He originally hails from England as well. He still has family there, actually. But he's made his fortune running mills in Philadelphia like his best friend, the groom, William Beaumont. Squire is a bit of a playboy. Responsible? No. Fun-loving, life of the party, persistent and somewhat charming? Absolutely. Let's head over to the reception hall. As everyone sits down for the celebratory meal, Squire scopes out the room for available ladies. Suddenly, his eyes rest on the bride's youngest sister, Clara. She is breathtakingly beautiful. And how well would it work for him and his best friend to marry sisters? Clara looks a little young, but that will make her a more suitable bride. Squire can mold her into exactly the type of woman and wife he wants her to be. He knows he can charm her. And from what he's heard, she's in a bit of a vulnerable situation anyway she wouldn't dare refuse him. She'll be lucky to have him, the absolute envy of all the other single girls. Well, enough of this thinking. Now is the time to make his move. 
He's going to grant her the opportunity to be close to him. She doesn't even know how fortunate she is. Squire Tankard strikes up conversation with Clara. He's humorous, charming, and makes his intentions well known. He's confident. And Clara, somewhat smitten and completely flattered by his compliments, hesitates. She tells him that she's still quite young. She's scared of blowing her chance of being with him, an older, wealthy, well-established socialite. Why would he wait for her to come of proper age when there are so many other prospects? To her astonishment, and in true predator style, Squire tells her that her age makes no difference. He'll do whatever it takes to be with her. Thoughts of romance dance in Clara's head as they begin their courtship. However, Clara's mother, Jane, is suspicious of Squire, his reputation, and his intentions. She doesn't want to ruin her daughter's excitement, but she has some serious reservations about this whirlwind courtship with a man her daughter just met. Deep down, Jane is afraid. She doesn't want Clara to end up like she did, abandoned by her husband and struggling to get by. But the socialites in Philadelphia think the world of charming Squire Tankard and are all too intrigued by his relationship with a young newcomer to town. They make a handsome pair. Their courtship seems like a dream. Squire trains Clara how to speak among company, how to step out properly, and forms her into the right kind of bride. He proposes, and an enthusiastic Clara says, yes. Another wedding for the Rowbottom family. The couple say, I do. And that's where our story of love, deception, abuse, and murder begins. William and Margaret are moving out of Philadelphia. Jane decides to stay with Clara and her new husband, Squire. Jane still doesn't trust him and wants to keep a close eye on her daughter. Meanwhile, Squire and Clara are enjoying newly wedded bliss for a very brief period of time. Squire's temper is explosive. He lashes out at Clara, becoming abusive. He threatens her. Clara realizes that she can't tell anyone about what's really going on at home. No one will believe her. Everyone thinks Squire is a golden god. The sun rises and sets with him. She used to think so, too. But now her bloody lip says otherwise. The only person she can be open and honest with is her mother. If Jane was not living with them, Clara would be totally isolated. Which is exactly what Squire wants. His new wife should feel blessed by her new social status. And household. But her mother is holding her back. There's only one solution. An ultimatum. Either Clara kicks her mother out, or Squire will kick both of them out of his house. Clara refuses to separate from her mother, and both women are left homeless and destitute. At this time, Clara is eight months pregnant. And now Clara has no other choice. She writes to Margaret for help, assistance, anything that she and William could do. 
When Margaret receives the letter, she immediately talks with William. They agree that the best course of action is to send money for Jane, Clara, and the baby to come up to Jamestown, New York, to stay with them. The Beaumonts will take care of them as Jane and Clara make the trip north. They are followed by Squire Tankard. Squire never confronts his wife, Clara, or any of the other family face-to-face. Rather, he goes around Jamestown making threats toward them so that the residents will hear and relay the information. Angered by his actions, Clara goes to Police Justice Hazeltine and asks that he compel Squire to furnish her and their child with support. Hazeltine arranges a meeting with Tankard, and Tankard agrees to send payments to his estranged family. He returns back to Philadelphia. Even though Squire Tankard has returned to Philadelphia, William Beaumont is still unnerved by his threats and registers a complaint with Police Justice Hazeltine, who, in turn, has a police presence at the train station in case Squire should return to make good on his threats. And for a time, the police also watch the Beaumont residence to ensure safety. Many months go by, and all is as well as it can be, but Squire Tankard still hasn't sent any support payments to Clara or their child. Clara asks Police Justice Hazeltine what else they can do. But unfortunately, across state lines, Hazeltine cannot compel Tankard to do anything. The only way for Clara to glean any support would be to return to Philadelphia and to move back in with him. She is not willing to do that. So she stays with the Beaumonts. Meanwhile, back in Philadelphia, Squire Tankard has been putting on quite the charade. He spins a story about his evil mother-in-law poisoning the mind of his new bride against him, convincing her to leave, and of his ex-best friend and sister-in-law causing further estrangement between him and Clara and the baby. She loves him, Squire knows, because who wouldn't love him? But she's too afraid of her domineering family to allow herself to truly submit to him as his wife. All of Philadelphia society believes his sordid tale. Poor, poor squire. He even writes to his mother back in England and tells her of his troubles. Nothing is his fault. It never is. Maybe if she sent him some money for a nicer house, his wife and child would come back to him. Without hesitation, squire's mother sends him the funds he's requested. Now that that's settled, it's time for him to win back Clara while simultaneously teaching her a lesson. Squire prepares for a trip back to Jamestown and talks a big game about what he intends to do when he arrives. A friend of Clara's overhears Squire's intentions for a fight and immediately sends Clara a telegram so that she knows he's coming. Her family is in danger. Squire's on the way. And whether this message gets to them or not is unclear. Before we continue with today's story, we'll have a word from our sponsors. Looking to improve your physical fitness, mental health, and overall well-being? Check out Evolution Spin. They offer indoor cycling, yoga, 
and Fred Sauna sessions, and pop-up events including Pilates and dance fitness. Look up Evolution Spin on the Vigaro app to view class schedules, membership options, and more information. You can also stay up to date with them on Facebook or Instagram at Evolution Spin Lakewood. What are you waiting for? Stop in for a class at their awesome studio located on 5 Fairdale Avenue in Lakewood next to Element Salon. You'll be glad you did. Back in Jamestown, things are going well for Clara and her child. They are still residing with her mother, sister, and brother-in-law, but it's nice to have the help with the baby and to finally live in peace. In fact, they are attending a potluck picnic at Driftwood on Chautauqua Lake. It should be a fun and relaxing time for all. But peace doesn't last for too long. Squire Tankard has been laying low around Jamestown, waiting for his opportunity to strike. He knows the police have been periodically watching the house, so going there isn't an option. He hears about this picnic— and finds out his estranged family will be in attendance. Perfect. They'll be taken by complete surprise. Squire makes his plan. It's a beautiful July day in 1899, and families have gathered on the lakeshore for a fun day. The Beaumont Rowbottom crew are among them. Margaret is at a table preparing food when she looks up to see the end of a loaded gun pointed directly at her. Before she can scream or run, bang, bang, dead before she even falls to the ground. As panic sets into the picnic guests, Squire runs over to the hammock that William is just rising out of. Bang, he shoots William. Fear-stricken, people are running from the danger. Some run to the Sheldon Cottage and phone the police. Squire runs into the lake, looks directly at Clara, points the barrel at his own head, and fires. The bullet is lodged in his cranium, and miraculously, he's still alive. Realizing his suicide attempt has failed, he runs into the woods and away from the lake. By the time the police are on the scene... Squire is nowhere to be found. The joyous day has turned to absolute chaos. Margaret, Clara's sister, is dead. William, whose wife has just been killed by his former best friend and best man at their wedding, is injured, shot in the shoulder by Squire's poor aim. And Squire is on the loose. He tried to take away all of Clara's support as an act of vengeance, and failed. But the pursuit is hot. Police will not rest until the murderer is apprehended. They search for the rest of the day and all through the night. Finally, the next morning, they find Squire sleeping in a barn in Gary, about ten miles from the scene of the crime. He's immediately arrested and taken to the same hospital where William is being treated for his gunshot wound both with serious injuries, both surviving. Throughout the following court proceedings, Tankard's attorney, who happens to be the same defense attorney from episode three, Pickard. Pickard pleads his client's insanity, similarly to episode three, 
even bringing high society friends of Squires from Philadelphia to testify as to his normal, lovable demeanor. The judge and jury are not swayed, and Squire Tankard is sentenced to death by electric chair. And that's justice served, right? That's where our story should end. Except it doesn't. Let's not forget, Squire is a wealthy man from a rich family with powerful friends. None of them want Squire to die. So after two appeals, and most likely some bribery, Squire's death sentence is overturned, and he is permitted to live out his days in an institution for the criminally insane. The reason I named this episode Anger is simply because it made me so angry to write. It reminded me of several cases of judges not wanting to inflict harsh sentences on high-class men because they quote-unquote don't want to ruin their lives. Meanwhile, these arrogant offenders have ruined their victims' lives. It's pure injustice. In the episode's introduction, I mentioned that anger, as an emotion, is largely misunderstood It's labeled as a bad feeling with a negative connotation. But I encourage you, dear listener, to acknowledge your anger. Listen to it. What is your anger trying to tell you? Many times our anger is setting a boundary, a protection. And that's not a bad thing. That is a vital thing. This is our last murder episode for season one. The next episode will be a season recap with extra details and facts from each episode. Please message me at Historical Homicide on Instagram with any thoughts or questions you have, and I'll do my best to include them in the wrap-up. Thank you for listening, and check out photos from today's episode on Instagram at Historical Homicide.